The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is One on One with Mitch LaFond, the podcast where the rockers talk, part of the Talking Metal Digital Podcasting Network. Now, here's your host, Mitch LaFond. Welcome to One on One with Mitch LaFond. And joining me on this episode, it is former Tiger of Pantang's bassist Richard Rocky Laws. We talk about the history of the band, working with John Sykes, his feelings of what the band is doing now, going on with the name, and a lot, lot more. Before checking that out, please head over to Twitter and check me out at Mitch LaFond, M I T C H L A F O N. And should you care to support the podcast, please. Maybe send a little donation to paypal.me forward slash Mitch And with that, here is the one, the only, Rocky Laws. We are speaking with Richard Rocky Laws, formerly of Tigers of Pantang. Uh, pleasure to speak with you, Richard. Hi, Mitch. Yeah, yeah, good to speak to you. And I'm assuming it's been probably a few years since somebody actually referred to you as Rocky, right? Um, well, I'd say my sister still calls me Rocky, <laughs> strangely, which is the only one who does. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I haven't been Rocky for quite a long, a quite, long time. Quite a long time. So yeah. let, let's talk about sort of the Tigers of Pantang and, and the history, but let's start with now. What are you doing these days? You're, are you still at all involved in the music industry on any level? Yes, absolutely. I, I've worked in the music industry for years. I'm a, I'm a lawyer in the music industry. Uh, so I've been doing that for more than 25 years now. Um, I mean, I, when the band finished, that's what I did. I, uh, I went and studied and uh, studied law and became a lawyer. Is it uh, corporate law or is it copyright law? What, what kind of sort of... Well, it's music, music law. It's uh, record contracts, um, okay. uh, publishing contracts, merchandising, stuff like that. Uh, mostly uh, I act for companies rather than artists these days. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's not, not really artist-based, but it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the enemy of the artists, I guess, because <laughs> I'm acting for the companies uh, that sign them, the record companies and the merchandising companies. But, um, yeah, so that, that, that's what I've been doing for, for many years now. That's actually interesting. Is, uh, is the music business as, in as much trouble as everybody likes to claim where, you know, record contracts don't mean anything anymore and you don't get signed to a label anymore? Or do you not see that at all doing what you do? Well, it's changed a lot. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the problems are, are, are not exaggerated. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's changed dramatically. I mean, when, when I was in the Tigers, the situation was that uh, you made money from recording um, and you played live to promote the recordings. And playing live was a very expensive thing to do. And, and generally speaking, you lost money doing it. Uh, whereas these days, um, there's not much money in recordings anymore and people make money playing live. But you have to have a record out to uh, for a promoter to book you on a tour, so it's kind of completely flipped round. And of course, the internet has had a dramatic effect on um, record sales, and you know the kind of money that's made from streaming is is nothing like it used to be in the old days with CDs. Um, I mean, when I first started working in the music business as a lawyer. It was just at that sort of boom time, time when CDs came out and, and essentially the industry was getting everybody to buy their entire record collections a second time. Uh, so, you know, that, that was a real sort of golden age for the industry. But uh, for streaming, especially if you're signed through a record company, uh, you know, you're getting a, quite a small percentage of quite a small amount of money uh, f for each uh, play. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's quite difficult, I think, for for artists these days. But there are other opportunities. You know, there is money in other things. Uh, people have to sort of diversify. There's a lot more money in things like having your music used in films and adverts, and you know, there there is a lot more uh, ways that music is used now than than they used to be. Uh, but but it's it's a more sophisticated, more complex uh, business. 
but yeah, I'd say it's probably harder to to, to make good money uh, as an artist these days than it used to be. Yeah, and and, and diversification is important. The and, and I'll get to the tigers in a second. But streaming is streaming really that much of an enemy in a sense? When you go on Spotify, I'll I'll go listen to bands that I probably wouldn't spend ten bucks on, and then I discover stuff, and at the same time. Uh, they get that stream, and you know it's sort of the same money as AM and FM radio was paying back in the day. Except now you don't have to have somebody put you on a playlist. The fan can choose to visit you. I mean, it, it, it's sort of be, it's like the modern day radio in a sense, right? Well, of course, if you look at it as the modern day radio, then it's 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 not such a bad thing. But I don't think radio used to take away from sales, whereas obviously streaming does. Um, you know, people now stream instead of buying something. And I think at uh, at the top end, you know, artists who would sell a lot of records that will have a lot of streams, and especially those that actually you know don't go through a record company and do it themselves. You know, they can still make a lot of money through streaming. But um, uh, I think at the lower end, at the, at the end where you wouldn't be selling that many records, you know, in the days where a CD would sell for sort of, you know, the, the wholesale price anyway would be sort of seven ninety nine or something, uh, you know, the artist would get, could get a pound a CD or something like that or maybe more. Uh, it would take an awful lot of plays to to make that pound, you know, or dollar or whatever. But it, it yeah, it. Where if you were only going to sell a few thousand records anyway, you will make nothing from streaming, whereas you would have made something from selling records. I think that's the difference. At the top end, yeah. you know, somebody like Adele is still going to make an awful lot of money. Uh, but I think for the people who sort of uh, struggle more at the, at the other end, I think it's it's harder for them. Yeah, I mean, I just see it sort of on the positive that on the low end, somebody might discover you, and then you might get that ad stream or that movie stream or that mother, you know, that 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 other opportunity. Whereas you may not in the past, and if you're on the lower end, you know, MCA might not have put your CD out back in 1985, but now that you can sort of dump it on the st- anyway. I'm not, well, it's certainly easier yeah. to ha- to get your your music to the public. Uh, you know, I mean, there are companies now that you can sign up to and, uh, you know, they will put your music on iTunes and Spotify and everything. And, uh, you know, even if only friends and family are going to buy it, you know, you can still have it up there. And, uh, and of course it's up to you to then go out and market it and, and create the demand for it. Uh, that, I mean, that, that is really the role of a record company is, is, is really, it's the marketing is what they do actually putting music out there now has never been easier uh and, and but you know i i think as a band i mean it, it's it's not difficult to get noticed i mean it, it never has been and it isn't now uh i think some people in fact the, their problem is they get noticed too quickly before they're ready and and get dismissed as not being something that the in- industry would be interested in and and then there's kind of no way back from that but uh yeah, that's, yeah, a, that's I, I, a great I, yeah. point, by the way. You get out there and you put a YouTube video in. You know, you look back in the old days when you think of Aerosmith or Kiss and all that, even Bon Jovi, they didn't get famous to their third album, most of them, mm. and they had that time to develop. Now, somebody sits in their basement, puts together a video, throws it up on YouTube, and of course everybody looks at it and goes, well, what was that? So Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So so let's let, let's let's lead that into... Um, Tigers of Pantang, the early days when you were mm. working to get a record deal. Um, you know, Jess Cox, the, the vocalist at that time, gave you sort of a punk uh, vibe, if you want. Um, but yet you, you got lumped into the sort of new wave of British heavy metal. What was the band trying to be? Were you more sort of Sex Pistolish, or were you more what was Iron Maiden doing and what those bands were doing of that um, new wave? Well, we weren't trying to be anything. I mean, okay. we, uh, we what we sort of were was just sort of what came out. You know, it's uh, it really the, the punk thing. I don't think really probably came particularly from Jess. Uh, 
I mean, Rob had been in a punk band. Um, Brian was very keen on punk music, and I, I was quite a fan of punk as well. We all liked sort of heavy rock, and uh, but we liked punk too. I mean, I, I've, I've always just liked anything with guitars, really. Um, I'm not, uh, you know, I was never sort of tied to any particular genre as long as it had guitars in it. But, um, you know, I, I think when we got together, it was sort of... Uh, an amalgam of just the things that we were into and 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 uh, and just our sound i mean it just kind of came out the first time that rob brian and me played together um you know we just straight away it was just like we knew there was something interesting there you know it was just uh you kind of just knew straight away but it didn't really sound like anybody else uh it just was what it was and there was a you know, there was a, a sort of punk thing there. I, I mean, the punk thing as well, I think, came from... We we were fairly limited in our musical ability, to be honest. Uh, and I think that was... Uh, there was a lot of the sort of punk ethos was to, you know, you, you just got out there and played. It, it didn't really matter whether you'd sort of spent 10 years perfecting your musicianship. You just got out there and played, and, and that was kind of what we did. Uh, you sort of learnt on the job so to speak you know you just got out and played and and hoped for the best so i think we were kind of working with those limitations really and uh there was the sort of punk influence the limitations everything else just created that sound and and uh you know we didn't even really sort of think oh let's get together a heavy metal band or anything it was just like you know let's play together and see what happens and uh i really i didn't even necessarily think anything would come of it i mean when i persuaded brian to come and jam with rob i mean it was um you know i didn't know whether they'd like each other or, or play well together or anything it just uh you know i'd never been in a band that was the first time i'd ever played in a band situation the first time the three of us played together that was the first time i'd ever played with anybody so it, you know I, I really didn't know what to expect but it just kind of you know we knew straight away that it was something and uh so yeah and thought well yeah we'll we'll try, you know get a singer and and take it from there and uh i can't really remember how we the first singer we had i can't remember how we got him but he, he looked and sounded like Geddy Lee. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we did about 25 shows with that first singer. Um, and, yeah, it was... Uh, I think he kind of wasn't as committed to it as the rest of us were, so uh, he left at that point. But, uh, you know, we wrote quite a lot of songs at that stage. We... Um, yeah, it was a you know we we were giving it a go, um, but yeah, it was just it was kind of what it was. It's, we we didn't sort of you know it wasn't deliberately we weren't trying to be uh, a particular kind of band. Although I suppose you've got to think in terms of the choice of cover songs that you did, and you know those were uh, they were they were all sort of rock songs. You know they would be Ted Nugent, AC/DC. Uh, we did a, a reasonably convincing version of Bastille Day by Rush, given that the singer looked and sounded like Geddy Lee. <laughs> but, um, you know, so it was that kind of thing. We, did, we didn't play any punk stuff, uh, but it was, uh, it was all rock. But, yeah, and then when um, the sort of second version of the band got going, I mean, we, we think of Jess as a founding member because it was, that was the version of the band that first recorded so yeah, you know, he he really we think of him as a founding member, but um, but he wasn't the original singer. And yeah, I can't remember the question now, but that that was how we kind of got going. No, yeah, and and it's funny because as as you were talking, I'm you know I'm trying in my mind I had set up that I was going to go through the albums separately, but looking at it from your perspective today as the job that you have in, in the role that you have today, what are some of the mistakes you saw that Tigers were making now? You know, looking back, you say, man, we could have survived a little bit longer had we not done this and had we done that instead. Well, the thing is, you know, it, a lot of it's not in your own hands, or at least it's not, you know, it, it, there are circumstances which arise that uh, you don't really have a lot of control over uh, i mean the 
one of the sort of crucial sort of strange things that happened was that uh, after Spellbound, we were supposed to do a live album. That was what we were going to do. Um, and we recorded a live album. It did eventually come out about 20 years later, but, uh, you know, we uh, we got a mobile studio, came out to record a gig. Uh, we were all, all except John Sykes, we were all very ill. And um, we just sort of, you know, we'd started the tour and we were... We, you know, we hadn't kind of learned to pace ourselves, really. I mean, you know, we, when we toured at that point, there was a lot of partying and everything, you know. And so we all got we all got really ill. We got a really bad flu. And, but we did the gig. And, you know, when you're on stage, the adrenaline takes over and you feel okay. When you get off stage again, you know, we felt terrible. I mean, we were dying in the dressing room. And sort of half an hour later, John Sykes comes in and says, uh, well, you know, I've listened back to the stuff we've recorded and it's unusable. And strangely, nobody ever, it was never mentioned again, you know, it was just like, oh, okay. And I think we just felt so awful anyway that uh, we just didn't give it any more thought. And it was really a bizarre thing because, I mean, a lot of live albums aren't really even live, you know, they're, they're either repaired in the studio to the point where yeah, i mean i know of at least one live album that was recorded entirely in the studio and um so you know why it was just kind of abandoned and we never i i never heard it you know i until it actually was released on a, a album 20 years later i'd never heard it and it was you know when it did come out you could see in fact actually it was uh, it was more than usable it was perfectly fine and you know, if there had been anything wrong with it, it would have been an easy thing to put right. I think probably John had just heard a bad note or something, and, you know, being a bit of a perfectionist, he probably thought, ooh, you know, this is no good. So the, as a result of not putting out the live album, we were sort of had to record Crazy Nights way before we were ready. And uh, it was, you know, that was the reason the crazy... I mean, it was... There's some good stuff on it. It's kind of half of a good album, really. But um, it, in terms of the, the sort of organization of it and putting it together, it was a shambles. And because of that, we didn't want to repeat that when we came to do The Cage. And, and so we got a, a, a pop producer in, really. I mean, he's sort of a rock producer these days, but we were the first rock band he'd ever done. And... Uh, you know, because we didn't want a repetition of the of the same sort of craziness that went on at Crazy Nights. We were ready to sort of really try and work hard and, you know, put a professional sort of operation together. And uh, so, you know, that that though all of those things were kind of crucial developments in the in the band, but but none of them were deliberate. Uh, you know. I don't really think um you know, another example would be when we got John Sykes in the band. I mean, we all di uh, we put an advert in. We uh, can't remember where, but advertised for a guitar player. And of course, when you've got a record deal, uh, everybody wants to play in your band, and so all of these really good guitar players turned up. And um, you know, didn't really occur to us not to just pick the best guy. And John Sykes was the best guy, but of course, it, it radically changed the band. Um, you know, I, I, if we'd kind of known how it would change the band, I don't, who's, who knows, maybe we wouldn't have even picked him. I don't know, because we weren't looking to do that. You know, it was um, what we were actually looking to do was just sort of fill out the sound because Wildcat was recorded, you know, with two guitars and Rob did rhythm and lead. So, you know, when it came to, to touring it, we really needed two guitars. So that was what we got another guitar player in. We didn't really think in terms of getting in a world-class lead guitar player, but that's what we got, you know, and, uh, and it did sort of change the sound of the band. Uh, so, yeah, these things, yeah, I don't think you really necessarily, you know, they're not necessarily mistakes, um, but, yeah, they, yeah. They, they things happen that are not really within your control and... Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it's, so, it's... So, so if we can look at some of this stuff, then uh, Wildcats. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back in time. So Wildcats comes out, and and it has you know sort of a modicum of success. You know, it, it mm. creates a fan base, and 
but the media, from what I've, you know, I've, I've researched all the different reviews, they, they, they took, took a lot of shots at the vocals. They said, oh, well, the vocals, oh, well, the vocals. So you get uh, John Deverell in for Spellbound. Where was that decision made? Is that, you know, the, the story that's out in the public is that Jess quit. Did he quit? Was the record company saying, hey, you need a more radio-friendly voice? Where does that decision come in? The record company weren't even involved. I mean, okay. uh, we didn't used to discuss anything with them. Uh, we were, uh, you know, they, they were the principal sort of object of our derision, really. So <laughs> we, we never talked to them about these decisions. I mean, we didn't talk to them about the decision of getting uh, John Sykes in either. I mean, they were horrified. You know, they, they, they didn't like the idea of having two guitars. Um, they liked it when they heard it, but they didn't like the idea of it. And we, we didn't discuss anything to do with vocalists. Uh, I mean, it was, uh, as I say, you know, getting John Sykes in the band radically changed the sound of the band. I mean, we we became a much more conventional sounding band. I mean, the sort of limitations we'd worked with uh, in the sort of wildcat era was, um, you know, led to something that was unusual and uh, that didn't really sound like anybody else. But, you know, with two guitars, and especially with sort of John Sykes' abilities, it was a more conventional band. It was a more conventional sound. It was a better band in, in most ways, I guess. But it was definitely, yeah, a, a more sort of mainstream kind of sound. And uh, I think really it, it kind of didn't suit Jess, really. It didn't suit his voice. You know, if you listen to Spellbound, it would be hard to imagine, really, um, Jess singing Mirror or something like that, you know. But, I mean, now I think it would have been interesting to, to have done an album with John Sykes and with Jess. I think it would have been an interesting thing, but you know, it it wasn't to be. I, I think. I mean, that was it. It was. It was really getting John Sykes in the band. It was the the, the catalyst, really, for that change. I would say. Um, Looking back at John Sykes, because you know he is, you know, now two thousand sixteen, two thousand seventeen. Here, we considered to be a, one of these great guitarists, revered the stuff with Thin Lizzy and and White Snake. Um, was he just the wrong guy for the band? Because he, he sort of did up the sound and up the guitars, and was he maybe just not the right piece of the puzzle? Oh, no. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we were delighted with okay. uh, with uh, the Spellbound sound. I mean... Yeah, it's a great album. Know, uh, what, what I mean is we hadn't really been intending to, to do that. You know, okay. that, that, getting John Sykes in wasn't in order... To, to change the sound in that direction. You know, we never thought about what direction we were going in. I mean, there was no thought of that at all. It was just, you know, we had all of these great guitar players auditioning, and he was the best, and so we picked him. And uh, so then suddenly you find yourself in a band with, you know, there's five of you, and, uh, and, and you know, one is able to play world-class lead guitar you know and uh and that pulls you in a in a certain direction it's not a kind of deliberate thing but i think uh yeah i mean when we um when we got john deverell in the band which again i mean you know we didn't we auditioned for a singer and and we didn't have in mind any particular kind of singer you know we weren't thinking do we want somebody with a soul sort of voice or do we want somebody with a operatic voice or anything we just auditioned and he was the best singer, and, and so he got the job. You know, we, we were really kind of thinking about... Uh, one thing about the Tigers is it's never had a kind of guiding sort of influence the way Maiden has. You know, I mean, Steve Harris decides how Maiden sounds, and so Maiden has sounded fairly much the same throughout its life because it's got that sort of, you know, he is in charge of his band and, and he decides how it's going to sound. Whereas Tiger's never had that. We were always, you know, everybody was equal, everybody had equal say and, uh, you know, really just whatever came out, came out. So when we got John Deverell in and we 
did the demos for uh, Spellbound. I mean, we were, we would have to, I was amazed. I mean, I, you know, I got home from the studio doing the demo recording, put the recordings on. And I just couldn't believe how amazing it was. You know, I just, it, for me, it was like, uh, wow, I can't believe I'm in this band. <laughs> you know, it's just, it was great. So, yeah, there was no uh, there was no regrets at that point because it just seemed like you know, and and I think for most people, uh, I suppose there's two classic Tigers albums, and one is Wildcat and one is Spellbound, but they're, and they're very different. But you know, I suppose both of those versions of the band are, are sort of classic versions, really. Yeah. But yeah, so I was going to say, I was just going to say, four albums in two years. Yeah. What was that? Um, record company saying, "Hey, let's get some product out there," or were you guys just so eager to get going that you wanted to create, create, create? Because you look at it now, four albums is for any band now is a decade, right? <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, no, it was it was it was madness. I mean, you know, Wildcat and Spellbound happened fairly quickly in a in a fairly natural way. And as I say, you know, we, we were supposed to fill the gap after Spellbound with a live album, and that was going to give us time to, to, to work on a third album. But because that didn't happen, um, you know, we, there we were uh, doing Crazy Nights. So the record company, yeah, they, 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 they were mad for, you know, they were always saying, oh, can you do another album? And uh, it was like, you know, we were always dependent on finance from them and uh you know it always seemed to be dependent on another album coming out so yeah that that was uh we, we certainly weren't ready for crazy nights and we we weren't happy about having to do it when we did because we hadn't we hadn't written much um you know it was and the way it was recorded because we hadn't really written it and the producer is that we got the wrong producer really i guess was part of the problem i mean that was a that was a wrong decision but we, we you know he the way he liked to work was he liked to record the bass and drums at the beginning and then add the guitars and then add the vocals and so because the songs hadn't been really written you know we were brian and, and i were playing the bass and drums to songs that we'd never heard it's kind of like a bizarre way of doing it. You know, we'd never heard these songs as songs because they didn't have any vocals. They didn't have any words. You know, I think maybe a couple of them did. But uh, a lot of them were just sort of, you know, it was just, there was a, gu a guide guitar, but Brian and I were kind of playing the bass and drums to songs we'd never heard, which was kind of bizarre, really. So, you know, if we'd had a chance, we never demoed that album. I mean, the others we we demoed, but but that one we never demoed, and we were straight in the studio, and uh, you know, and it, and it was pretty shambolic, really. The other thing was we were just uh, you know we were partying pretty hard at that point, and uh, I think we kind of taken our eye off the ball, really, as far as what really is important in being a band, and we you know we were treating the what are the sort of ancillary things. Um, as, as being what it was all about um, and that, that's kind of what we tried to put right on the cage really was um, you know I think we'd all realised that, uh, that that kind of stuff can't go on and I mean yeah we thought it was hilarious to kind of to, to get the producer drunk you know he'd get so drunk we'd have to send him home in a taxi you know not in and then we couldn't record anything for the rest of the session, you know. It was just sort of ridiculous things like that, absolutely crazy behavior, really. But, you know, we weren't really ready to do it. It was just, the whole thing was just shambolic. And uh, we were very disappointed with the result, really. Yeah, so, um, so I've got a whole bunch of questions here. So first of all, uh, the sound from Wildcat all the way to the cage varies differently like i said one is more sort of that punk ethos which, which is wildcat mm -hmm. and by the time you get to the cage um it, it really almost sounds like sort of a, a rocked out duran duran in a sense and i don't mean that to be offensive i like the cage i happen to actually <laughs> enjoy that album but but mm -hmm. if you if you think back to 1983 1984 or, or in fact this was 82 it sort of seems to be following along that you know, the knack and, and sort of those more glitz, you know, fun rock, if you want. Um, 
was that sound a mistake for the band? Because did, did it, in one sense, it reaches radio, but on the other sense, on the other hand, it sort of alienates the metal fans, right? Well, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I was watching an interview with James Hetfield, and he was talking about when they did Load, and he said, you know, we got arrested by the heavy metal police for not being heavy metal enough. And that's kind of like, you know, it's a bit like that. But, but of course, we, we actually got away with it for many years. I mean, you know, before we were brought to justice for it. Because uh, at the time, it was, it was a great success. I mean, you know, I don't remember at the time anybody going, oh, this isn't heavy metal enough. I mean, it was our most successful album by far. Uh, it was the most successful tour. So, you know, people, people were buying it. And people were coming to see us, having bought it and listened to it. Uh, you know, it, uh, we we had a fairly high up the bill um, gig at Reading Festival, which went down really well. I mean, you know, the, the, now you hear people say, "Well, you know, it's uh, it's it's soft rock and all the rest of it," but at the time. That really wasn't happening. I mean, at the time, it was uh, it was clearly yes, it was a bit of a change of direction, and it was a, the only time we actually made a decision to go in a particular direction, and that was to go in a in a, a more commercial direction. We, uh, that was definitely a decision that was made. I mean, that was made whilst John Sykes was still in the band. Um, and it, uh, the Cage would have been a similar album, even if he'd still been in the band. Uh, two of the tracks were recorded with him still in the band, so I mean he was up for for that as well. Um, yeah, so I mean uh, we decided to do a more commercial album. I mean, you know exactly how it was going to be. We didn't know. I mean it was a very different sort of approach. You know, we got a producer who was sort of had done a lot of pop, and you know suddenly it was like well you had to submit songs and you know they were going to be compared to some cover songs that were also in there you know and and you weren't necessarily going to get your songs on the album i mean you know every every song had to compete to get on the album um so it was a very different thing you know we played to a click track i mean we you know it was just it was very uh, regimented it was uh, and to be honest after what we'd been through it was great to do it you know and uh, now you know you see I see on YouTube comments like oh you know this was uh, they went really off the off the ball here but yeah I don't remember it at the time it didn't feel like it at the time we did see it seemed like you know it, nobody in the band certainly was uh in any way not up for it um and it was great fun to do yeah. um i don't think we would have carried on in that direction i think uh it was probably a one-off um but you know it was yeah I, I i don't remember it was you know i think it's a good album i mean it's not my favorite tigers album by any stretch of the imagination and i think there are things about it which date it now in a way that isn't good I don't like the electronic drums on some of it. I think they really sound very sort of eighties. Um, well, it really does. Uh, the The electronic drums give you that eighties flavor. But uh, listen, uh, yeah. "Lonely at the Top," uh, "Paris by Air." I mean, those to me are, are classic Tiger songs. I, I lo- and of course, love "Potion yeah. Number Nine, But I, I love those ones. Um, so the album comes out, and you say you have this successful tour, and it's very successful. And of course, "Love Potion Number Nine has uh, you know, success over in the States and in Canada. Why was the band not able to establish themselves in North America? Because really, you know, you're not Ozzy Osbourne until you're Ozzy Osbourne at Madison Square Garden. You're not, you know, Def Leppard until you're Def Leppard at the L.A. Coliseum and stuff. Why could the Tigers not make that move? You had the songs. Yeah, well, we thought, uh, you know, we thought, that finally we might actually get to go to America um, having made that album, you know, uh, we thought, well, that's got to be suitable really for the American market. I don't think, I mean, you know, it wasn't necessarily sort of specifically targeted to that. It was was deliberately commercial, but it wasn't deliberately American. 
Um, but we did think, having made it, that they, you know, we might finally persuade MCA to send us there. But with them, it was like um, they, they always sort of thought, well, you know, when you get the record sales, you can go. And we would always say, well, you don't get the record sales until you go, you know. You need to be out there promoting it. And uh, but I think a lot of it had to do with, as I say, in those days, it cost money to tour. And uh, to tour America cost a lot of money. And, um, you know, I think they probably wanted to see some more commercial success with the recordings before they were prepared to invest that money. And um, was and MCA the... Sorry, was MCA the right label for the band? Because MCA wasn't, you know, the, you look back historically, they're not really a hard rock label, right? Um, well, you know, at the time that uh, we signed to them, uh, you know, we would, we were happy to be on a major label. I mean, you, you know, whether they were the right label or not, I, I think, you know, there were problems with them. They were largely the sort of UK office of an American label. We were actually signed to the American label, not to the UK label. The UK label didn't sign acts. They they were kind of like a sort of UK office that, that you know, what they were used to doing was, um, you know, sorting out stuff for American bands when they came over here. It was a bit of a new departure for them to start signing things, really. So, you know, there were some issues. They, they didn't have, when we first signed to them, they didn't really have a sort of great press department or any of that. Um, but I, I, I mean, I don't really, uh, you know, if you say, well, you know, would, would it have been better not to have signed to MCA? Well, then, you know, who would we have signed to? You've got to sort of think in terms of what the alternative would have been. Um, well, you know, Atlantic, been, Capital... Yeah, but I mean, none of those people offered us a deal at the time. True. You know, it was uh, it was very much a it was a bit of a sort of scramble. You had, um, I think, was it for to go signed uh, Def Leppard, and um, which I think they were a Universal label. Um, EMI signed Maiden. Um, you know, and then there was a bit of a scramble for uh, sort of other labels want, who were interested in it to sign some of the other bands who were around. And that's how we came to sign to MCA. But, uh, you know, I, the, the, all of the record, the, all of the major record labels were not interested particularly in New Wave of British Heavy Metal at the time. Um, some of them were and some of them weren't. I, I, you know, I, I, it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't a feeding frenzy of labels wanting to sign us. I mean, you know, we didn't, we didn't, um, we didn't uh, have a, a you know it wasn't a, it wasn't a bidding war to sign the tigers in fact we actually were signed to neat records really and we originally got signed to mca through neat records not directly um and it took a bit of uh took a bit of doing to get rid of neat to be honest out of the picture uh, yeah neat neat has uh well the, the first singles and so on and so forth um the cage comes out and it does well and then the band breaks up, basically. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, well, I, I'm skipping a step in there, but but there was no next album, at least not from this lineup. What happens there? Why why was there not a 1983 album? Yeah, well, it kind of all went pear-shaped, really. It's, um, you know, because it, 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 it's, you know, it's, difficult to overemphasize how well it was going, you know, and not, not just in terms of, you know, the, the profile of the band and everything, but I mean, you know, that, that lineup, the, the, the tour, the cage tour was a great thing to do with a band were, uh, was a great band to be in. We were, you know, Fred Purser was a, was a really good musician and, and he, you know, we kind of like were, the rest of us had learned, you know, we'd had a couple of years of doing this. We'd sort of played bigger and bigger gigs. You know, it, that, it was a, a much more professional band, and it was uh, it was very tight. And, and, and we all got on very well. You know, I mean, I, I think we were a pretty difficult bunch of people, really. I mean, the original four and all the people who joined, I think, you know, we were all quite difficult people. We could sort of have an argument in an empty room, most of us, and we argued a lot. 
and uh, you know that there were times when it was quite unpleasant but that time actually wasn't but the issue really was that, that we didn't want to do cage two and mca did want us to do cage two um in fact i mean you know they wanted really they had got it into their heads that uh, because of the success of Love Potion Number no. Nine, that wouldn't it be a great idea to do a load of metal versions of soul classics? You know that that's kind of the way that was the way they were thinking, and uh, and we just wouldn't do it. So, you know that's where we were with MCA. You know we we they were basically saying we will only put any money into this if you basically make the cage again but even more so you know we we want more soul classics metalled up you know um which is a weird and, request when uh, you think about it a very weird request but but considering the success we'd had i mean you could understand where they were coming from um you know it uh but we didn't want to do it um and they wouldn't put any money in if we didn't do it, and, and it got to really quite an impasse. I mean, we had we had recorded um, a fifth album on demo, but it was all written by Fred. You know, it's another one of those situations where you know it wasn't really that long since the Cage had come out. Um, I think we were all sort of feeling a bit in the writing department. I think you know we were all feeling a bit of a loss of confidence because. You know, I mean, some people hadn't managed to get any songs on on the cage, and um, so suddenly it was like, you know, oh, it's not another album again. You know, it's a sort of fifth album gone, and you know, it was like Fred sort of, you know, he said, "Oh, I've got, I've written an album," so it was like, well, "Okay, we'll do your stuff." And you know, I don't, I don't think it's the only time that's ever happened in a band. I mean, I think when Pink Floyd did the Wall, it was like. Uh, you know, right, who's written anything? And Roger Waters had written two concept albums and the rest hadn't written a song between them, you know. And we were in a bit, a bit of that sort of situation. He'd written an album and we hadn't written anything. So we demoed his uh, his songs and, um, you know, we we had like this little four-track machine and, uh, you know, it's, it's really funny now to think that that's how somebody might demo an album when you think of what you can do just on a computer. But... We had this little four-track machine, but we did like a proper demo with live drums and everything. You know, we set the drums up in my bedroom. We got all of the mattresses from all over the house and packed them against the walls. And we made another bedroom, the control room. And, you know, we bounced all the tracks down. Fred was sort of doing all of this stuff with this little four-track. He was really good at that kind of thing. And uh, he kind of sort of, you know, it was almost like he'd taken over, really. Uh, you know, he was kind of, at that point, definitely the, the major creative force in the band. So we demoed this album, and um, so, you know, we couldn't agree anything with MCA, so we thought, well, let's try and get another record label. And, and we went around, and lots of them were interested. You know, people like EMI were interested, but what they were going to have to do was, was buy pay you out. to yeah. buy us out of MCA, yeah. And nobody was interested enough to both buy us out and invest the money that was needed to uh, push the project forward. So it kind of stagnated a bit, and, and we were sort of really not knowing what to do. And we'd sort of been around a lot of... Uh, at the same time, well, to cut a long story short, at the end of the cage tour, our, our man we'd parted company with our management. And uh, so we we looked around for new managers and everything, but you know we we kind of just couldn't move it forward because we couldn't get away from MCA and MCA wouldn't do anything um, unless we did what they wanted. So we were just a bit stuck. And the next thing to happen was that um, you know, a manager came along who uh, knew our agent, and he said, uh, "Well, I I can get you a record deal, but." but not if Brian and Rob are in the band. And, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's a terrible thing. I mean, I know. Why Brian, though? Brian, Brian's a, a good drummer. Well, 
well, do you know, I mean, the bizarre thing was what he said, what they said was that, that, uh, that you know, the other three of us were tall and Brian and Rob were tall yeah, enough. Can you believe that? Oh, well, you know, I, believe it or not, I can believe that because back then, Image, well, in fact, back then, Image has always been very, very upfront in the music business, right? It's, uh, yeah. That's, that's, you know, you look at uh, Alice Cooper and Kiss were doing and David Bowie, they all, Image, 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 Image. Um, yeah. So, so the band breaks up. I guess the legal play now would have been to just call it something else and not call it the Tigers and start again, but that would have been complicated. Well, not, not really, because you, you're signed not just as the Tigers, you're signed to MCA as people. So, you know, we were actually, at the time, you know, stuck in this contract as people. We, we couldn't, I mean, even splitting up, technically, you couldn't have gone and recorded with somebody, you know, with somebody else because you were exclusively signed to MCA. Um, so there was there was no kind of escaping that we were stuck with that. Uh, it was still always going to be a question of buying us out of MCA, but this guy said he thought he could. But the fact is, you know, it, it nothing happened, nothing came of it. I mean, um, I mean, it was a terrible thing to sort of tell Brian and and Rob, and probably I should be ashamed of myself for having anything to do with it. But um, you know, but it, it seemed like there was no way out, you know. So we kind of went a bit down that, but I could see pretty quickly that nothing was going to happen. This guy got more and more difficult to contact, and, you know, it was clearly it was all a load of rubbish, and uh, nothing was going to happen at all. So, I mean, you know, nothing, the band never played without Brian and Rob, so it's not like, you know, the band carried on without them or anything. Nothing ever came of it. So I just decided I didn't want to carry on and um you know i had other things i wanted to do you know i neglected my education at that point so i wanted to go and study and also i'd you know you, you kind of realize that everything you're doing it's, it's like your livelihood you know it's how you make a living and, and and it's all dependent on other people all the time and, and i wanted to do something that was just dependent on me and uh you know that i wasn't going to find other people's decisions, you know, um, getting in the way. So that that's kind of how I ended up um, leaving it all, uh, and and really didn't really give it another thought for for many years uh, after that. So so let me ask you this: as a a young man at the time, you must have been what twenty four, twenty five. You couldn't have been that that old, right? Yeah, that's probably about that. Yeah, was it? disappointing that you couldn't be sort of the rock star or was it a, a relief and you look back on it now and go you know what i did damn well you know w w was there a sense of disappointment or a sense of relief at that time like okay we're done now let me go do this education let me go be a, a lawyer a solicitor i guess you call it um yeah so disappointment or relief at that point well, it's, uh, when it, as it was happening, it was very upsetting. I mean, it was really awful. It was awful to just see, you know, as you said, I mean, uh, you know, we'd been, uh, we, we were in our most successful period. We, you know, the, the album was it charted higher than any of the other albums, you know. We'd been to Japan. Uh, we've, you know, was, things were really going well. And, uh, you know, to see that, fall apart in, in very quickly i mean you know it really sort of happened quite you know, only in a few months really after the end of the the cage tour um you know i think that there's a um i think there's a, a youtube of we did a uk tv show called the tube um and i think that might well have been the last time we actually ever played together and uh so yeah i mean it, it was awful and the whole thing about you know sort of Brian and Rob, I mean, they were the people I started the band with and everything. It was just awful, you know. Um, so that that was just horrible. Um, but then I, th I guess once I decided, I, you know, that I really needed to go and do something else, I, you know, I, I didn't spend a lot of time sort of worrying about it or thinking about it. It, uh, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, yeah. Uh, and a, as you it, look back on it now, it's pr it probably is a great relief because sort of the rock and roll lifestyle compared to what you're doing, 
you know, with family and everything settled down, and you probably actually ended up having it better off in the long run. Well, you know, I, I it would have been, uh, I mean, it would have been great if it had all just sort of happened and, you know, we'd been sort of, you know, Metallica or something and, and all ended up sort of rich and famous and, you know, lasting success and everything. That would have been great and I would have enjoyed that. I'm sure. I mean, you know, by the time we came to to do the cage, I I I was teetotal. I I didn't drink at all by then. Um, you know, I had uh, had problems with that, and and I you know. So I think I probably was. Um, I think I would have probably at that point survived the rock and roll lifestyle because I think I kind of had already got over that. Um, but as it was, I mean, you know, these things just. Uh, I definitely, looking back on it now, I mean, I think, you know, it, I, I was lucky that it happened the way it did. And, uh, you know, life's been good and uh, I'm glad I did it. You know, yeah. it was a, it was a fun thing to do and uh, it would have been great if it had more had come of it. But, uh, you know, I, you see so many bands, uh, you know, I mean, so many bands never even get a record out, you know, to have four albums on a major label. Um, you know, to have gone to Japan, to Europe, and the UK. Shame not to have gone to America, but you know, but all the things that we did do, I, I sort of think of as, a, as really good things. You know, and I think a lot of the music was stuff that, that, that we, we can be proud of. And uh, oh, I you agree. Know, I mean, I certainly uh, over the years. I mean, uh, it's it's amazing now to sort of think, you know, that Rob's still doing it and that Jess is still doing it. Um, you know, which is great. I I think that's fantastic. You know, um, yeah. I went to see, I went to see Rob's version of the Tigers a couple of years ago. I think it was, and they were really good. You know, and um, I've seen the YouTube clips of Jess, and I mean, it's a it's a pretty authentic sort of Wildcat sound. You know, I think uh, it's all a good thing. Whether I could still do it, I don't know. I mean, I I don't think. There'll ever be any kind of reunion. Um, well, I, I, let me. I, I, you know, we are. We have done a lot of time here, so I. I but so I. I thank you for that. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a couple of questions here. Yeah. In in '85, John and Brian come back with an album called "The Wreckage," which was under mm-hmm. the Tigers' name. First of all, was that somewhat surprising? You know, you broke up. MCA wouldn't let you out of your contract. Yada yada yada. And then here they come with this new album. Were you shocked, surprised, annoyed, angry, happy for them? I mean, baffled? Um, well, none of those things, I'd say. <laughs> I mean, I, I was uh, at university doing my degree, and I, I walked into the living room, well, the sort of place I was living, and uh, some of the other people in the flat had, um, in the apartment, had, a, had the TV on, and... Uh, and there's the Tigers of Pantang, John and Brian playing. And uh, it was like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah, I, wasn't, I certainly wasn't angry or anything. I was, I was, I was surprised, I guess. But, um, but no, I wasn't, uh, wasn't angry at all. I, I think with bands, you know, I mean, if, if nobody's using the name, then people can pick it up and run with it. And if somebody drops a ball, somebody else can pick it up and run with it. I, I wouldn't have expected to be after anything. It's not like that, is it? I mean, uh, you know, uh, it's a terrible shame if the brand, if, if you want to call it, that's probably a horrible word, but, you know, but, if but that's, that's going to waste, right? I, I think I'd rather there was a band going called the Tigers of Pantang, you know? I mean, I'm amazed that, you know, all those years ago when I sort of thought of the name, because um, when I thought of the name, there wasn't even a band to call the Tigers of Pantang. To think that there's still a band called the Tigers of Pantang is pretty amazing. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, John and Brian were doing it. I, I, you know, I didn't sort of think, um, really think much of it at all, really. But I, I suppose if I had thought about it, I would have thought it's probably a good thing. Um, you know, I, I haven't really heard those albums much um certainly never sort of sat down and listened to them um but you know i I certainly no objection to them having done it no not at all yeah and and brand is not is not a a a bad word it it, you know brand over band any day that's that's why i look at it you're (laughs) 
you know, uh, which is why Kiss has been so successful. Um, yeah. Now, 1999, the Wacken Festival, or Wacken as I guess they call it, uh, calls you up and says, let's, or calls Jess up or Rob up and say, you know, come and come with the Tigers, get all the guys, get Brian, get Rocky, let's, let's do this. And according to both Rob and Jess, you decline, which seems to be the case because the show went on and you weren't there. Why did you decline? Why would you not go back for a one-off and just say, okay, let's go shake our, you know, took us for 45 minutes and excite the fans? Uh, nobody asked me. I mean, that's, a, that's obviously the first reason. I didn't even know anything about it. Okay. Um, I, I don't know why nobody asked me, but they didn't. Um, I don't think I would have done it anyway. Uh, you know, I mean, my job's, not the sort of thing where you can just sort of suddenly, you know, go and concentrate on something else for a, for a while. You know, I had two days off last year. Uh, you know, it's not I haven't got the time to, uh, to, to 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 do the rehearsals, and you can't just get. A, I mean, yeah, there was a point a few years ago where I think when the Tigers bass player left, and Rob rang me and asked me if I wanted to do it. Um, but you know, not not necessarily to sort of join, but did I want to do the couple of gigs that I had lined up, and and I couldn't do it. I mean, I you know, I, it's so long since I played that stuff that um, you know, the idea of just sort of getting up there and playing it, you can't do that. You know, you've got to rehearse and everything, you've got to learn it again. You know, it's sort of well, let's say it's thirty five years or something. You know, since I played any of that. Um, you know, I've, I've got the I've got the albums, but for many years I didn't. I didn't, you know, I didn't have it. I didn't have any of the albums even. So, you know, it's not something that you can just suddenly do. It takes a bit of time. I mean, I wouldn't do it unless you could do it properly. Um, so, yeah, I, I I wasn't asked, and even if I had been asked, I don't think I would have done it. And and well, you know, with the with the fortieth anniversaries of of Wildcat and Spellbound and all that coming up, hopefully you'll you'll get together and do a one off with with the boys because I think that would be fun for, for the fans. Um, and then lastly, John Deverell, he's gone on to be a stage actor and does all kinds of wonderful things over in the UK. Um, were you surprised that he turned to to, to stage acting and and how did you rate him in terms of being a singer? Oh, I thought he was a great singer. I mean, I, I even more so when I came to sort of listen to it again uh, after, as I say, I, I kind of just really didn't think about any of it at all or, or listen to it or think about it at all for maybe 20 years or something. It was really only, I suppose, social media and things that, that started to sort of, you know, and then I kind of had a sort of attacks of nostalgia, I suppose. But uh, then listening to it again, I think especially there was a bootleg of the Reading gig, and uh, you know, I, I once I got back in touch with John, you know, I messaged him to say, you know, I was just really knocked out by how good he was. You know, I, I didn't even remember. I, I thought he was good at the time, but I didn't remember him as that good. Uh, you know, so yeah, he was a really, really good singer. Um, very and being an actor doesn't surprise me he was a very dramatic sort of uh singer you know he's very dramatic sort of guy uh so no that doesn't surprise me at all um i think maybe that would have always been his uh preference had he had the choice between you know singing in a band and acting he probably would have always wanted to act uh so no that that doesn't surprise me and uh yeah so, uh, he, was, he was an excellent singer yeah, he really was. We were very yeah. lucky to to get him, you know. I mean, yeah, he was over in Persian Risk, and then I guess came on over. Now, the the live album you've been referring to is the Nottingham, or or it came yeah. out as Nottingham Rock City. Uh, I've got to say that that is one of my favorite live albums out of all of them because, you know, having done these interviews and all, I know that a lot of them have been touched up in the studio, and, mm. and but that one. There, there's an energy to it, and yeah, there are mistakes on it, absolutely, but they add to the charm of the whole presentation, and mm. uh, the the version of Mirror on that album, 
it, it really just is what Mirror should be. It's, it's sort of the perfect, dirty, love, rock, ballad, whatever you want to call it. It just works. And, uh, the, uh, you know, folks should definitely seek that out and pick it up. And, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's my favorite Tigers album, that one, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because, I, I mean, for me, a band is what it is live. It's not the studio albums, really. I, I think, you know, a band lives and breathes what it is like live. And that's the important thing. And, um, you know, but, you know, that if what you say about Mirror is quite interesting because listening to that uh, Mirror on that album, you know, I think, oh, that's actually, we did that pretty well. But at the time, we we thought it stank like <laughs> and we dropped it as quickly as we possibly could uh we hated playing it live um i don't know why but we it always seemed to be too slow but actually when when listening to it on that album it's it's actually just right but it always i suppose because the rest of the stuff was kind of like you know 100 mile an hour uh, our manager used to say you know we used to sort of race each other to the end of the song but uh, that one always on stage felt like a dirge, you know, it felt far too slow. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it, it kind of it just didn't feel right live. But yeah. I think we just, it's a shame we didn't hear ourselves play it really, because I think we could have carried on playing it. I mean, you've always got to do some sort of... Uh, slowish song in the set you know but um well yeah it has to be properly paced and and anyway i, yeah. I just love the way that it that it that it's delivered there there's a sense of drama to it on that album it just you know when i make a playlist and i go to put that on i usually try to put studio albums on because you don't want live in your headphones but i always have to go to that version that version just it, it, it is the mm. version um you know we said 20 minutes we're an hour i, I could go on for another two hours but uh I'll finish with this. You mentioned that uh, you saw Rob and Tigers uh, going on. Their new album, which is simply called Tigers of Pantang, was my choice for best album in 2016. Yeah. I don't get a sense that you're disappointed or annoyed that he's gone on with it. In fact, I get a sense that you're happy that he's carried on sort of the, the name and the, 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 what do you want to call it, the, the heritage of the band. Um, oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, because, you know, I put a lot of hard work into it, you know. I mean, it's not just something that suddenly happened. You know, he's been doing this for something like 15 years. You know, that this, so even this lineup of the band, well, maybe not because I think the guitarist's quite new, but, you know, they've been, most of those guys have been in the band longer than I was. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad somebody's doing it, you know, I mean, if it's not me, then I think it only matters to you if somebody else is using the name, if you want to use it yourself, really, or if you think what they're doing stinks, but it definitely doesn't stink, you know, I mean, it's really good. Uh, I mean, you know, it, I wouldn't, I don't sit there and compare it to the original band or anything. I mean, I, I, I don't see how you can really, it's, it's sort of you're talking about two things 35 or 40 years apart um but it's you know it's definitely good um and so yeah i'm glad he's doing it but i, I you know i'm also glad that jess is out there doing uh doing what he's doing you know i, I certainly that i think the thing is for me you know i i've got nothing to be bitter about about the band you know i've got nothing to be to look back on other than be happy with it all because you know, it, it certainly, uh, everything panned out at the time. It was all good for me and it's all been good for me since. So, you know, I, it's not, um, none of it's a problem really. And, uh, I, I wish all the guys the best, you know? Um, yeah, it's, uh, and you know, we went through sort of tough things together, you know, all of that. It's a long time ago. There's a lot of water under the bridge or, you know, we had a lot of arguments. We, you know, we, we, didn't get on a lot of the time, but that's all. That's all history. It doesn't doesn't matter anymore. It's it's too long ago. I you know some people maybe can't get over it, but it's uh, yeah. I, I I'm happy with it all. Yeah, and 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 that's uh, for me. It's refreshing to hear because I, I hear a lot of 
rock star stories where, well, he shouldn't have done that and blah, 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 and it's bad and it's my brand and my merchandise and, and it's always somebody's complaining and it's nice to hear somebody say, you know what, good for him. Glad to hear that he's still carrying on the name and it's all good. So so thank you and thank you for your time. It's It's been an absolute well, pleasure. Well, thank you as well. I, I, you know, I'm really uh, happy that people are still interested in, and I think, you know, I'm getting the impression people are more interested in the name than they've ever been. And, uh, you know, that's great. It's, uh, it's really good <laughs> just to, to, for people to be interested in it and people appreciate what, you know, what we did all this time afterwards. It's amazing, really. Yeah, you know, and, and I think everything sort of comes in cycles, and, and, I, and I think we're sort of going back to those early 80s years with, especially, you know, with all the sort of celebrities that are passing away in, in 2016. We're sort of looking back and going, Man, we had it good back then. Let's let's not forget yeah. this stuff. And um, you know, Tiger. You know, it, as well, it, it's kind of like uh, it, it's a sort of um, it's a bit of a jumping off point, I think. You know, for bands like Metallica, and I have to say, you know, that nobody has, has been better at sort of giving a nod to to where they came from than Metallica have. You know, a lot of people sort of say they're not as good as they used to be and stuff like that. But I mean, in terms of you know uh, what they've done for for the new wave of British heavy metal. You know, I mean, they've been fantastic. They, they were constantly mentioning it. You know, you see James Hetfield in a Tigers T-shirt and stuff. You know, they've been great for it. And uh, you know, it's it's good. You you, you know, you now see festivals and uh, you know, there's bands that sort of I used to go and see in pubs in Newcastle playing. You know, there's people like Raven and and Fist and people like that, you know, I mean, they were, they were actually before I even was in the Tigers, you know, I, I used to go and see those bands in the pubs in Newcastle and, and they're still going and everything. And, and there's this interest in, in the new wave of British heavy metal. And, uh, yeah. And, and a lot of that is, is like you said, thing. it's all uh, Lars Ulrich. Just, uh, ask Brian Tadler yeah. and Diamond Head how, how important Metallica has been to their career. I think it's, uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's just, uh, not many people do that, you know, not many people that take the time to actually say, yeah, these were the bands that we listened to and this is where it came from. And to, to still be bigging it up now, you know, it's, uh, I, I really appreciate that they do that. Yeah, I do too. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your time. Absolute okay. pleasure. brilliant. Good to talk to you. Thank you then. All right. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye now. Bye, Mitch. And there you have it, folks, my interview with Richard Rocky Laws, formerly of the Tigers of Pantang. Uh, thank you for checking that out. And please check me out on Twitter at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N, paypal.me forward slash Mitch Lafon, should you care to support the podcast. And if you would like to know what the Tigers of Pantang are currently up to, head over to Tigers, with a Y, of Pantang.com. And with that, I bid you a fond farewell. Thank you for listening. Au revoir, arrivederci, sayonara, and whatever else you say in whatever else language you might speak. Um, hmm. Bye for now. Oh, my. <laughs>